Hey everyone, Uh, before we get this episode started, we wanted to let you know that we did record this episode at the same time as our previous Missing 411 episode. Um, So you will hear us say David Politis' name incorrectly throughout the rest of this episode. We, again, misinterpreted his name as Politis. misinterpreted his name as Paul Deans, when in reality, his name is David Politis. Sorry about that, David. Thanks, y'all. Stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. Hello, everyone. Hello. I'm Chad. And I'm Emily. Welcome to another episode of The Long Road Home. woo yeah, this is our fifth. Can you believe it? Yeah, fifth episode. We're rolling through them. Uh, we're weekly now, guys. We had so much support from the first release that we did. Uh, it was great. We really appreciate it. We appreciate the love that we saw. And so we decided to try and give it a go and go weekly. So we're going to be pumping these out, everyone. Keep listening. Keep liking. Keep subscribing. And make sure to tell all your friends. Yeah, we really appreciate all the support, though. For real. Thank you guys so much. Um, also... We wanted to thank all the firefighters out in Oregon and California fighting all the wildfires right now. It is unbelievably smoky here in Montana, and we don't even have any fires near us right now. Well, we did have a fire, but it's basically out now. Yeah, no, I think the majority of the smoke that we're experiencing is from Oregon and California. So for all of our West Coast folks... um, Look for ways to be supporting your first responders. We couldn't get through this season without them. Yeah, fire season's gnarly out west, uh, especially with the mega fires due to climate change. So thank you guys so much. And gender reveals. And gender reveals. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Stop being stupid. Stop it. Just stop it. You don't need Tannerite to tell me if you have a boy or a girl. You There just should be no explosive devices involved in the announcement of the gender of your baby. It nope. does not make sense. We should have learned this lesson by now. You're not that important. Can you tell we're riled? Yeah, just a little. But listen to our show because you are important there. <laughs> <laughs> so in other news, uh, Kanye West is Moses now. What? Yep. Called himself the new Moses. Kanye is one of the few celebrities oh, that I follow because his decline has been super interesting is <laughs> i guess is how you would say it i don't want to say fun because I mean, it's kind of sad but also i can't look away from watching him go insane well the religious aspect um has been very interesting hasn't it yeah it really has and to me it almost feels like maybe he's not as bipolar as he thought he was and he might be a little bit more schizoid you might be right yeah. um so he says he's moses though he does uh is he, he claiming responsibility for the plagues of 2020 not yet he probably will fires disease (laughs) uh he will kill your firstborn son i know you better watch out that's you and me chad if he is moses and and i mean if if you're looking at it we've hit some of the 10 plagues that hit Mm -hmm. egypt right yeah Um, so far so good right now uh, the next one after locusts was darkness um so we're kind of experiencing that today with the wildfires but then Mm -hmm. after that it is the death of a firstborn so if you're like myself or chad watch out Hide your kids. <laughs> He'll turn his cane to a snake. He'll bite you. So yeah, basically, he's really mad at his record company right now for some undisclosed reason. He's trying to separate from them. He's also mad at J. Cole and Drake, Travis Scott. He wrote in a tweet that he needs a public apology from J. Cole and Drake for some reason. He called himself Nat Turner. He called himself Moses. He also wrote he's the second richest black man in America. I need all my people with me to get us free oh there's the moses line okay yeah let my people go he invoked jay-z's given name with an apology from his spelling i'm waiting to meet with sean carter also my bad i meant sean no respect disrespect to my big bro he just has been going off lately i don't know what's going on so yeah he's went from god to worshiping god to being moses and really the religious delusions and delusions of grandeur are very common in schizoid people and he might need to go back to the doctor and get some actual help so kanye please go get help i know you're not going to hear this but i'm putting that energy out there go back to the doctor and talk to someone because sitting in wyoming by yourself is not healthy no no it's not helping anything no the desert is a place of madness and being out there by yourself is not good well, in other news, Chad, did you hear what's going on in Venus this week? Something stinky. 
<laughs> that's true. That's true. So scientists believe that they have found signs of microbial life on Venus. So mm. um, microbial. for those of you who are familiar with planetary environments, you would know that the surface of Venus is very harsh and would not be able to sustain life. However. So we thought. No. Oh. <laughs> no. I thought it, we had <clears throat> microbials. No. God, I well, can't that's say what I'm, that getting, I'm getting to. However, telescopes have detected unusually high concentrations of the molecule phosphine in the clouds of Venus. Oh. This means that in the atmospheric layer of Venus, they have found phosphine, which is usually associated with feces or farts, oh. meaning that there's microbial life living in the clouds of Venus um, excreting um, this, this chemical. Yes, phosphine. Wow. That's crazy. So, mind blown, we might have our first evidence of life on another planet. Yes, it is microbial life, so it's very, very, very small. But that's a good first step, right? Yeah, it's got to start somewhere. And, you know, we always think about life being similar to us because we can't think of it any other way in terms of just like advanced alien species. But it might just be a giant shit monster. A giant shit monster in the sky. In the Wait. sky. A giant shit monster in the sky. <laughs> All right, we're starting on our second episode on Missing 411 today, everybody. We really hope you enjoyed the first one. If you haven't listened to our first one, I would recommend you do to get a good idea of where we're drawing our information from. So I'm going to be talking about some cases in Oregon, specifically Crater Lake and also in Mount Shasta in California. So if you don't know anything about Crater Lake, it's in South Central Oregon, it partly fills a nearly 2,148-foot-deep caldera that was formed around 8,000 years ago when uh, the volcano Mount Mazama collapsed. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, it's the only national park in Oregon, and there's a lot of wilderness surrounding it. David Paldines has a very large cluster of missing people in the Crater Lake area, and specifically, there are three young boys that have went missing within a 40-mile radius of one another throughout the years. So weird. Our first story is the case of Derek Ingebretson, who went missing on December 5th, 1998 in the Winema National Forest at a place called Rocky Point in Oregon. He was only eight years old. Rocky Point is located adjacent to Highway 140 on the banks of the Upper Klamath Lake, and it sits just on the east side of the Sky Lakes Wilderness Area, a very desolate and wild region of Oregon. Robert's father and grandfather decided that this was the place that they were going to go Christmas tree hunting this year. So, uh, yeah, it's a sad story. Um, the three made a 50-mile drive from where they lived in a place called Bonanza to where they were going. It was in the afternoon when they reached the area in Rocky Point that they were going to look for their tree. Derek was bundled in winter clothes and carried a small hatchet. There was snow on the ground, and they walked around the area trying to find the right tree. The dad and the grandfather, uh, the dad's name is Robert, by the way. I think the grandfather's Bob. I might be totally wrong. The father and grandfather both thought they were watching Derek, but neither of them was, and very soon they realized that he was gone. Um, they looked as long as they could without panicking and then decided that they needed help, so they ran to the road and flagged down a car. Do you know any Bobs that are the first Bob? No. That's just like a Bob for there <laughs> to be a Bob. Bob and a Robert out in the woods. Right. Um at least he stopped it by naming his son Derek. Someone had to. I don't know. Well, uh, it is Bob. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, right. nice. Just west of the location where Derek disappeared, there's a very steep mountain leading into a wilderness area, and to the east is a small highway and then the lake. There weren't a lot of places for Derek to hide. A storm had just arrived in the area, and a light snowfall was starting. Now, at this point, uh, this light snowfall would become a major storm, and there's a, an actual police ledger of the response activity to Rocky Point. So at 4.30, the snow was falling. The, the air was 23 degrees. 5 o'clock, still no deputy on site. 5.04, the sheriff requests a uh, search and rescue response. And that actually doesn't materialize until 9 p.m. later. So it takes just about four hours for the search and rescue team to get there. So... They were very far out in the woods by themselves. Uh, it was even hard for the sheriffs to get there because of the storm that was happening. So the, any any sort of police presence that could have helped didn't 
arrive until 7 p.m. So, like I said, at 9 p.m., the first search and rescue units did arrive, and uh, eventually the weather, and eventually the weather did clear. At that point, the Air Force sent an FLIR-equipped helicopter into the area to scan the mountainside for heat, but nothing was found. Searchers poured into the area the following days and trudged through deep snow looking for Derek. Unfortunately, he was never found. They did a very, very thorough search, though. They found all sorts of different stuff. They found um, they found shoestrings, a torn T-shirt, and eyeglasses. That's how complete that they searched. So they were looking everywhere for this kid. Gotcha. So those items did not belong to Derek, but that's just like it demonstrates how thorough their search was? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. So since he went missing, a lot of investigators believe that he made it back to the highway and someone picked him up. And so child abduction seems to be what a lot of people believe happens to Derek. Do we know how far away the highway was? Not necess- Not really. It doesn't ever give like a mileage or any... They do say how it was nearby. Could an eight-year-old boy make it there? I don't know. Right. And now at this point, he's been missing for four hours by the time anyone shows up. Yeah, before anyone even got there. Um, some people do think he fell through ice that was at the lake that was also nearby and drowned. But his body never surfaced. Nothing ever came of that either. Uh... The lake idea doesn't necessarily add up, though, because he would have had to have crossed the road. And as an eight-year-old boy, are you really going to leave your dad and your grandpa behind? I don't know. Right. Why would an eight-year-old boy cross the road and just go walk out on a lake when he's lost his dad and grandpa? Yeah. And I don't know. It's very strange to me that there's never any sort of, like, yelling. The child's not yelling. Right. No, There's no real indication that he was gone. And um, it seems to have happened really fast, like a lot of these cases have. And he's eight years old. Again, how how far is he really going to get? I don't know. We'll never know. Um, So David Paulding's did go to where he disappeared, and he he describes it as a lonely spot in the winter, and there's very little traffic. And personally, he thinks it was it would it's hard for him to believe that he went to the road and a pedophile picked him up. What seems to interest him more is, like I said, the commonalities between uh, Derek and two other missing cases of young boys, a Nathan Madsen and a Samuel Bolke, B-O-E-H-L-K-E, who we're not going to cover this episode, but he sees some similarities in those cases. And those are the three that happened within the 40-mile radius of one another. Weird. Yeah, very weird. Um... I would like to say at this point, having lived out west for like almost a decade now, is that the weather changes constantly here. And it's not very strange that the weather could change at any second. So to me, it's more likely than not that a storm would come through, especially given the time of a lot of these cases. Like December can be very stormy. May is very stormy, especially here in Montana. And I would assume most of the, the rest of the northwest. Right, it's not unusual for it to be sunny and warm one day and then snowing the next. Or even hours from one another, right. minutes from one another. It snowed here in June. We got like four inches of snow a year ago. It's peculiar, but not totally uncommon. But it is weird that it happens in almost every single case in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that is the, that's the story of Derek Ingebretson, and that's pretty much all that we know about it. Nothing was ever found, huh? Nope, there's still nothing has been found. Wow. Yeah, very, very strange disappearance imagine how like maddening that would be crazy i would go mad yeah just gone yep uh oh there was one thing and this for some reason really does unsettle me is that in the woods they found uh a lean-to shelter made out of like lashings or branches huh we don't know who made it and that's one of the most unsettling things to find in the woods to me when i'm out doing stuff is to find just a lean-to or some sort of like makeshift shelter way out in the middle of nowhere it's very very unsettling so do they think that the that he made the lean-to or they don't know they, they have no else idea made the lean-to yeah could have been uh. yeah um which is another similarity in a lot of these stories but yeah, that is the story of Derek. Now, we also have another story out of Crater Lake, an older kid named Charles McCuller. Charles McCuller went missing on October 14, 1976, in Crater Lake National Park. He was 19 years old. Now, this is one of the cases that David Paulding's really lays into the National Park Service over because of, I guess, how they treated it and just some of the things that happened while he was looking for information as well. 
He submitted a series of FOIA requests to the National Park Service over several months, and the official response from Cherie Wilson of the National Park Service in Denver stated that they lost all reports relating to the incident. They claimed that the park did not have the space to maintain these files, so they were destroyed. He asked if the regional office or the National Park Service headquarters in Washington had copies, but they didn't. Uh, so, terrible file maintenance at the National Park Service, which honestly doesn't surprise me because the only thing people want to do there is be outside. So, I, I just mean, don't understand it. Record keeping is not that hard. I know, but it is when you just want to live your life, man. <laughs> I guess it's so. a government organization. But I mean, th- file keeping in any government organization is a nightmare, and there's so much of it. So, so you think that it's just like they have it? It's just in hordes, in like piles, and and maybe rooms. it might be easier to say it's missing. It might actually just have gotten shredded. Oh, yeah, shredded with like old receipts and stuff. I don't know. That hurts. That's government work for you. Um, so Charles McCuller, whose name was Charles Wesley McCuller, was from Virginia. On January 8, 1975, he left to go travel the national park system and photograph the national parks. So he was very reliable, and he called his parents as often as he could to explain where he was and where he was going to go. The last call that he made to his parents was on January 27, 1975, at a friend's residence in Eugene, Oregon. On January 29th, Charles told his friend he was going to travel to Crater Lake to photograph the park in its winter element. He said he would return by the 31st, and if he wasn't back by February 1st, to call the police. And unfortunately, he never showed back up. Um, on February 1st, because he hadn't returned, his friends filed a missing persons report to the state police. The area around the lake and nearby city were blanketed with flyers of Charles' face. Before long, a logger reported to the police that he gave Charles a ride to the park entrance. Now, the logger believes the date was January 30th when he gave him the ride. On January 31st, according to reports in the FOIA filed, the snow depths at Crater Lake were between 24 and 90 inches and drifts were up to 20 feet. So it was socked in full of snow. Uh, now, this is something I really don't like. It took them until February the 10th to notify Charles' parents that he was a missing person. How many days is that? It took nine days for them to decide to notify his parents. Ugh. Yeah. That's awful. Yep. It's... I like, mean, it's fucked up. I don't know why why it took that long. Yeah, that's, no all, that's what I, I was just going to say. Why? <laughs> mm-hmm, no clue. The state police did confirm that Charles had traveled east and then south on Highway 138 to enter the park along the northern perimeter. This route would have taken Charles by Diamond Lake Resort, the closest resort to the northern entry of Crater Lake. Now, I don't understand why I went that way because it seems like the south entrance is the only real accessible one in the winter, so maybe I'm wrong. I... Er, so that's strange to me. I don't know why he did that. Gotcha. It seems like after that, information is gone. There is no more. No one seems to know what happened between that point and when he went missing. <clears throat> when he went missing. So they just know that he went into the park? Yeah. They know he was there, and then he just never came back. Um, now, his father made two trips to the park looking for his son. David got a lot of letters from his father in the the Freedom of Information Act request that he got, and his his dad his dad's letters indicated complete frustration with the Oregon State Police and their investigation. But he did seem to have a lot of admiration for the National Park investigators. So did, I'm sorry, and maybe you're going to get to this. Did they find his car or anything? Um. Well, he didn't take a car. He oh. he, he he got a he got a ride. Right. Yeah. So, so did the guy, the guy dropped him off at the entrance of the park? He did. Well, he in, dropped him off as close as he could get at the, near the Diamond Lake Resort, I guess. In February or it, January. January, yeah. It was the end of January. Okay. Yep. So strange. Yeah. It's a weird, weird case. So this is where the story sort of continues after he, he goes missing. So his dad comes to the park and he left a list of items that Charles would have been carrying should someone find them. One item that was quite peculiar was an odd-shaped Volkswagen car key that would have been in Charles' backpack, which he would have been carrying. Several rangers were in the administration building and heard what Mr. McCullough was describing. One of those law enforcement rangers was Marion Jack. Now, Marion was a full-time science teacher at McLaughlin Junior High School in Medford, Oregon. Every summer, he worked at Crater Lake as a seasonal law enforcement ranger. He would bring his family up there, and that's where they would summer, basically, while he worked there. So... He spent 24 summers between 1962 and 1986 doing this. 
He was a graduate of the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, as well. Uh, wait. He was a graduate of the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, and had a bachelor's degree from Southern Oregon University. Now, uh, months go by. Still nothing. Now, in early October of the next year, 1976, a group of hikers were well off normal trails on the west side of the park near an area called Bobby Creek. Uh, the creek drains water from the western high perimeter of Crater Lake. The flow travels west towards one of the main highways surrounding the park. This is very out in the middle of nowhere. Like, it, it takes a lot of effort to get where they were. While they were hiking, however, they found a backpack and a scarf, which they thought was very strange. So they searched the backpack, removed a few items, and then hiked to the main law enforcement office at Crater Lake. They also tied a, like a piece of cloth in the tree to mark where they had been. Cool. Yeah, that was pretty smart. Once they arrived at the office, they took the things out that they had found, and in those things was an unusual key. Just as hikers placed the key on the table, Mary and Jack remembered that this was the key that Charles McCullough's dad had stated would be in his possession. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, so he just so happened to be in the right place at the right time. What's even crazier is that he wasn't supposed to be there. He just so happened to be at the park in October because the superintendent had asked him to bring up his horses so they could ride the range to look for trespassing cows that were grazing on national park land. So it was just like a weird coincidence. Yeah, that absolute he was there. stroke of luck. So the hikers had a conversation with Marion. They drew a map of where they had been, and Marion and another ranger named Dave Lange rode Marion's horses into Bobby Creek to see if they could locate the body. So the next part are words that came straight from Marion during an interview that he did with David while they were writing the Missing 411 book. Marion said they walked down into a bowl top area with a small creek running in one end and out the other. A tree with a four foot diameter across the area and partially the creek. David and Marion searched the small canyon and did not find much until Marion stepped over a large tree and saw a pair of pants immediately on the other side. He explained that if you were standing straight up and melted straight down into your pants, this is what it looked like. Whoa. Yeah. It looked like he just went, Phew. Oh, yeah. that's so spooky. Really, really weird. The first thing about the scene that struck him as very unusual was that the belt buckle and the pants snap were undone. He reached down and found one broken tibia or fibula, fibula in the right leg of the pants. It was broken in the middle and had blood on each end. There were no other bones in the pants or in the area. They found the elastic from underwear, but the underwear had deteriorated away. The one and a quarter inch wide brown leather belt was still in good condition. Marion looked under the pants and found socks with small bones inside but no boots, which McCullough had definitely been wearing when he disappeared in the middle of winter. Always the shoes. Always the shoes are gone. Uh, on the other side of the fallen tree, approximately five feet away, they found a skull upside down and a lower jawbone. There were small bone fragments scattered throughout the area, just like a lot of these cases as well, just through animal animals I mean, uh, consuming him. They did look for other evidence that Charles's father said he would have, but they never found anything. Weird. Yeah. And, I mean, this included things like uh, camera gear and a very nice folding knife that he had kept with him. Right. Like, it wouldn't mm. have decomposed. Yeah. The fact that there was no camera gear is odd. Yeah. It, it would indicate, like, something happened to him, like right? someone robbed him. Yeah. Or, yeah. But it's hard to say that that is what happened because of where he was. Yeah. So, like I said, the drainage itself is like a swampy area up in the northwest, like, wilderness part of Crater Lake. It's not near anything. It's out there. Now, how did he travel? How did he travel 14 miles from the north entrance on top of 105 inches of snow? How did he get there? Um, no. People, snowmobilers and skiers both claim that the snow is impossible to get through uh, because, like, it, you would just sink. Right. Yeah. With that much snow, it doesn't matter... I mean, it doesn't matter, like, how wide of skis you have or anything like that. You like, know, you will sink, and to imagine to walk through something like that is totally impossible. Well, yeah, you know, it's interesting that you'd say that, because I was thinking immediately when you said the setup of, like, the tree going over this whole, like, well, essentially, um, I, or the tree going over this whole drainage area or covering this whole drainage area, I was immediately thinking or picturing a tree well. Yes, one of the most scary things you could ever die by if you don't know what a tree well is just go go google that and just watch a couple of like training videos because it, it's basically a space underneath a, a large conifer usually because the branches are low hanging that basically doesn't get any snow underneath it the snow builds up around it and you get this pit 
skiers will, and I guess snowshoers, snowmobilers, can fall into these pits, fall through the branches, end up stuck upside down, and then snow will collapse in on them and they suffocate. And that's what a tree well is, and it's very scary. Yeah, and you're hard to find, and it's mm-hmm. hard to get out of, and and that's kind of what I thought of. But his pants wouldn't be set up that way. No. Um, and also, how would he have gotten there in the first place to have fallen in the tree well? I really that's, don't that's know. That's the whole part. And is there a road that is anywhere nearby? Do we know that? There, there is a a road, but it's not inside the park. And that's one of the, like, on one of the Reddit threads that I was looking at is that's, well, that was someone's explanation of how he got there is he took this road that kind of runs adjacent to that area of the park and worked his way in from there instead of going in where the, the logger dropped him off. Huh. But once again, I don't know how he got that far in with that much snow. That's what I was wondering. It was still, it was still a pretty good distance in away from yeah. the road. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's at least a couple of miles. Oh. Yeah. Uh. His father does believe to this day that foul play was involved. Right. If his father's alive anymore, I, I don't know. Um, but in the book, he still believed it, that something happened to him. I was looking through theories, and some people believe that maybe he was robbed and put there later. Right. Which, I mean, could have happened. I mean, a spring had occurred at that point, but then you're keeping a body for months. Right, like, right. Who, Over gonna... what? Over a camera and a knife? Yeah, if you can't walk through the snow, if there's 100 inches of snow on the ground... You're not going to be able to walk through it, much less drag somebody through it, right? And if you're robbing somebody for a camera and a knife, you're not going to go through all that trouble. He was a, nine, what, 19-year-old Absolutely kid? Not. He yeah. didn't have anything else. Like that, you would have just taken, taken it and left him maybe, but then how would he have gotten that far? It doesn't. It just doesn't add up. No, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't add up. No, not at all. I need to know the truth. Details. I want to know details. <laughs> Please. So, I mean, this is all the details we got, unfortunately. The skull was found to be Charles's, so that, I mean it was his body. But no one really know, no one has any idea of what happened to him. No one knows where his camera and his knife went. He was supposed to be wearing a coat that wasn't found. Why were his pants undone? Another idea that I think could have happened is I don't know how he got there, but he maybe fell and broke his ankles, oh. and he might have been stuck there. Which God, what a terrible way to go. If that's what happened, I feel terrible for the guy. Um, but it all goes back to the fact it's like, I know what falling in deep snow is like. Not 100 inches. It doesn't even have to be that much. It could be three or four feet, and you still can't You can't get up. You, you're pushing. It feels like you're in thick water. So I don't know how someone could have ended that far up into a drainage by themselves. And what, it's 1975? Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have like the modern equipment that we have today, the snowshoes that we have today, skiing and skinning gear. You know, how is he going to get it? Just it would be very hard to get that far on your own without the proper proper equipment. Yes. And then we also have the question, why? Why would he go into the woods that far on his own in that deep of snow? Very weird. I mean, we'll never know. I mean, if you ask me and you're a photographer, I'm sorry, I know you have more stories to tell and you have more to say, but if you're a photographer, a young photographer, and you're wanting to go and take pictures of the area, aren't you going to follow the roads? You'd think so. Aren't you so. going to follow the trails? Yeah, especially not being from there. ducking into the backcountry? Right. It's so, yeah. It's a weird story. There's mm-hmm. another photographer case in Crater Lake that he disappeared almost the same way. Um, but that he was, it was like 1890 or something like that, but the same kind of thing happened. He went up with his gear, he went missing. Uh, I think they found his body and then like his gear was gone. So I don't know. I mean, it could have been, it could have been a robbery and, but once again, hermits of the mountain. Yeah, exactly. Uh, did you read that in the book? What? The hermits in the mountain. There's, there's a whole, No, I totally just, that's <laughs> my theory. Like we were talking about the lean twos earlier. Well, this will be a good transition into California then because um, our next story comes from... But is that it? Is that all we know? Yeah, that's all we know. Oh. Yep, nothing uh, was ever... Nothing else was discovered about his case and what happened to him or how he ended up there. Talk about a cold case. Very. (laughs) But... (laughs) (laughs) It's it's almost too dry. (laughs) Too dark. Too soon. So uh, we're going to go into California, but before we actually look at the case, I kind of wanted just to talk about the Mount Shasta area. It, Northern California is a hub of strangeness in the United States. I love it. There have always been weird goings on in the area of Mount Shasta. Approximately 75 miles directly west of Mount Shasta 
is the coast of California and Del Norte County. Del Norte sits at the farthest northwest point of California and is adjacent to Oregon. Uh, in the late 1800s, this county was enjoying a boom of mining in the inland hills that stretched, in, stretched into southern Oregon. In 1896, the local newspaper, the Crescent City News, added a supplemental section called the Hermit of the Siskiyous. And that's why I said ah, that. Ah, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, this section dealt with many of the strange facts of the Siskiyou mountain range and featured some of the odd occurrences in the region. Now, on page 78 of this story, L.W. <laughs> L.W. Music, but it's music but with a K, a C-K, so it's like Mu-Sick. Um, <laughs> L.W. Music wrote about the disappearance of 18 miners from different locations in an area near French Hill, a region just south of what is now known as the town of Gasquet. I don't know, once again, who's been out west, where you guys are living that are listening to it, but um, out here are these mines, and they are littered in the woods. And they are so isolated and so far gone. And to imagine 1800s, the 1800s, where it's just you digging a hole in the ground is sort of what we're thinking about right now. Um, they're very remote, very dangerous, and people would go missing like that all the time from these mines, and no one would ever know what happened to them. I hate it. What? I don't like caves. I don't no, like the idea of mines. I don't mines. like caves either. Being underground creeps me out. The whole thought, everyone brags when they go caving about doing that pancake walk where you're just like sliding in between rocks. And I'm I'm like, good for you. I'm not about it. I'm not here for it. What if the earth would just have to hiccup and you'd be gone? Yep. That's all it takes. Uh, he did. Because you know, that's how the earth rolls. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> he did also say that of the 18 disappearances around French Hill country, only one of the bodies had ever been found. Yeah, so from the beginning, this whole area is full of missing people. Tell me more about the hermit. Anything else? No, that's it. That was, it was <sighs> I don't, I, there's no, there's never a hermit. He just called it that. I don't know why. It seems like he just, just was describing the, the strange weirdos that lived in the mountains there that were going missing. And he called them hermits. So that's mean. so mean. <laughs> it's so terrible. All these hermits are gone. Talk about All he rolled in his newspaper money. Can you imagine how rich you have to be to have a printing press? Sorry, I pinched, I pinched, okay. I pinched my finger on the microphone. <laughs> and I was trying to play it cool, but... No. Nope. Sorry, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Things will get you. So, the case that we're going to be looking at out of this area is the one of Carl Herbert Landers. He went missing on Mount Shasta on May the 25th, 1999. This is the oldest case in the book. He was 69 years old. He was from Chicago and migrated to California where he met his wife and had two girls and a boy. They lived in the community of Orinda, just east of San Francisco across the bay. He was actually married to a woman who was the mayor of the town for a while. She was mayor of the town for a while or they were married for a while? They were No, she was mayor of the town for a while. Gotcha. Yeah, they were married up until this happened. Okay. So Carl was an engineer by trade, but for 10 years before his retirement, he worked for train, heating, and air conditioning as a salesperson. One of Carl's main hobbies for 30 years was running. It was actually, he ran the Boston Marathon. He ran it in five and a half hours. So pretty impressive. I couldn't have done that. Okay, so he's, a, he's an in-shape guy. He joined a running club when, he joined a running club in Arenda and met the two men that were with him when he went missing through that club. So he's just a fit guy hanging out with other fit guys. Basically. Just trying to stay in shape and get outside. Yeah. Uh-huh. He, was very, he was very active. So as he got older, he decided he wanted to climb the highest peak in every county in California. So, cool. Yeah, it was a great great task. Good a cool for mission. you. Yes. Um, in May of 1998, he headed for Mount Shasta. He did climb the mountain that year, but he was not able to summit due to weather. So it took a full year, but he was able to return to Mount Shasta, this time with his two long-term friends from the running club, Milt Gaines and Barry Gilmore. Barry Gilmore graduated from the University of Oregon with a business degree and afterwards joined the Navy. From 1961 to 1966, he had a career flying military aircraft off the carriers Midway, Hancock, and Enterprise. After that, he joined American Airlines and flew planes for 33 years. Milt Gaines owned a wholesale warehouse and associated business in San Francisco, and he had actually been with Carl the first time he tried to climb Shasta. So he, he they've they've actually done this together at some point. Like they they worked as a team together. They were going back to try again. Yeah, with Barry in tow, they were well prepared. They had ice axes, crampons, and proper tire proper attire. 
for the climb. So they knew what they were doing, they knew what they were getting into, and they were ready for it. At 4 a.m., the men left the motel they were staying at, and Barry drove them in his four-wheel drive to the trailhead at an area called Bunny Flat for the Mount Shasta Summit attempt. This is sort of the entryway to an area called Avalanche Gulch, and that's the path, that's the easiest path that you can take to go up Mount Shasta. According to the stuff that I've been reading, you can do this in a day from this path. So it's not a, not a super-duper hard summit. Right. It's something that people do, and it was the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Um, you can do it in a day, I should say, but most people choose to camp Overnight. at a halfway point. Gotcha. Yeah, and that's where things kind of got weird for them here. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Milton Berry explained that there were 10 to 12-foot snowdrifts at the start of the climb at Bunny Flat. Um, this was in May, springtime in the West. There usually is a lot of snow at high elevation, so not strange that there was a bunch of snow here, right? The men decided to make the three to four mile hike up to the mountain to a location where the Sierra Club had an old cabin called Horse Camp. The men also stated that Carl was taking a drug called Diamox for adjustment to the altitude, and it was giving him some tummy problems. Aww. He was pooping his pants. Oh man! Yeah, just <laughs> what bad a story rough for this start. Guy. You yeah. know, he just wanted to summit this peak. He was going again. It's, they had a yeah. plan. He had an extra friend. He's like, "Let's go and do it." I even got my medicine, so I'm ready to go. No dice. Oh, medicine didn't buddy. didn't treat him well. Yeah, it was not good for him. Okay, so, but there's a cabin like halfway up. Is that what you're saying? So they were, so, like, that, they, that's they hiked, pretty chill. Yeah, they well they hiked to the cabin. Uh, during this time, Carl had to stop several times because of uh, his diarrhea. Hope uh, you brought a shovel. Yeah, so other than that, though, nothing strange happened during this part of the hike. The men continued on and made it to a location called 5050, approximately 600 feet below Lake Helen, which is a major stop for most climbers. The lake is the spot most climbers spend the night before the last push for the summit. This is an alpine lake. At this point, it's probably covered in snow. I looked up pictures of this area, and there's basically a giant snow berm, and it looks like that's where everyone camps to buff the wind coming off the mountain. Okay. Or coming up the mountain. That makes sense. Yeah, so they were in the usual spot. The wind was blowing very hard in the early afternoon when the men decided to stop there. They dug their three-person tent deep into the snow and stayed there for the night. Milton Berry remember Carl having to leave the tent for another bout of diarrhea, but other than that, everything was fairly normal. And he got to go. He got to go. Yep. Not feeling great still. I don't know why he kept taking it. <laughs> yeah, you know, you think he would have been he would have been good by this the is, evening. I mean, this is over 12 hours. Yeah. I, there's got to be some I would just be dizzy. I don't know. I'd rather be dizzy than pooping. Yep. So when they woke up the next morning, the wind was really really bad. 70 miles per hour. The men saw people leaving Lake Helen and actually going back down the mountain. So they sort of stopped and hung out in their sleeping bags and just kind of watched everything happen. Eventually, the wind did die down, and people started to work their ways back up. But at this point, the men basically understood that they were not going to be able to summit this time, unfortunately. As a group, though, they decided to hike the quarter mile to Lake Helen and just go say we did it while they were up there. So they started to pack up. As Barry and Milt put the tent into their bags, they saw Carl standing and staring. He appeared to be getting cold. Milt told Carl to start walking for Lake Helen, and they would meet him there. The lake was just a short trip around the corner of the mountain and up a few hundred feet. Milt told Carl that he and Barry would finish packing and be on the trail quickly. Carl and Milt left the pack tent at 50-50, and inside of 30 minutes, they were heading for Lake Helen just a little behind Carl. Approximately halfway between 50-50 and Lake Helen, Barry wasn't feeling well. He told Milt that he would head back to 50-50, grab the tent, and meet the men later in his car. At this point, Milt's the only one going up to find Carl. Barry's gone. Interesting that Barry started to not feel It is well. weird, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, what happened? I, mean, I guess it just could be the altitude. I think the top is like, I can't remember. There's a several thousand foot difference between even the midpoint and the top of the mountain. So it, I could see how it could affect someone who's not used to that. It's true. There's also a lot of a lot of stuff on, on the Missing 411 subreddit about people having weird experiences and and their friends or themselves feeling really unwell all of a sudden yeah Mm -hmm. i mean it is weird so milt walked to lake helen and saw between 20 and 24 campsites there he asked a ranger that was supervising the area if another man had passed through and continued to climb the ranger stated that only one man had gone up and he had taken the quote-unquote casual route milt took off after the climber just in case it was carl but he started to get closer and he 
in interviews, he said that the man was moving too quickly for it to be Carl. He couldn't seem to catch up with him, which I guess he thought that he could catch up to Carl. So he didn't actually make it to the guy. He got close, decided it wasn't him, and he came back. Was he calling for him? I don't know. Interesting. Doesn't say. Okay. Uh, Milt comes back to the lake. He asked the ranger again if anyone matching Carl's description had passed through, and he said no. Milt goes back to 50-50, hoping to see Carl. He's not there. Carl and Milt's backpacks were still there, but Barry's was with him back at the car. It was 5 p.m. Milt waited at 50-50 for another hour trying to decide what to do. Eventually, he decided to take his pack back to Bunny Flats and leave Carl's at 50-50. He arrived there at the flat at 7 or 8 p.m. As soon as they got down there, they notified the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Office of his disappearance, and the search started the next morning. Question. Yes. At the start of this story, or midway through this story, you mentioned he went to a ranger station? Or who who did he ask? If, who? Milt. Who did he ask? Milt asked a ranger that was at the 50-50 area that everyone was camping at. If, if Carl had passed by. Yes. Why didn't he ask the ranger for help when he realized that Carl was missing? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I guess he didn't. I guess he didn't think he was missing yet. I think he was starting to panic, but he hadn't put the pieces together in his brain because he walked all the way back to where he had started before he decided, like, uh-oh, this is not good. Right. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough question. I don't have an answer for You know, if you if you go up and you're like, hey, has my friend come by here? And they're like, no. And then you go and you try to follow the only other person that's been up there and it's not your friend, you'd think you would come back down and be like, hey, so... I don't know where my friend went then. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't. I know. guess maybe I don't know the I don't know the lay of the land. Maybe there's a lot of different routes. So the following morning, the men went back to the trailhead and found U.S. Forest Service crews and the county sheriff on the scene. The first day, search operations were placed at Shasta City Schoolyard and then the airport. The Carl's wife was notified that she was Carl's wife was notified that he was missing. To which she responded, "I had a premonition something would happen." That's literally as far into detail as he goes about that, and I want to know more. We need to know more. Yeah, there's no description of that what she says she saw. Casual. No, nope. <laughs> uh, Milt reflected on his memory of that morning and adamantly states that there were no large crevasses in the area where Carl was hiking. There were some large holes near some trees, but that was all. Milt stated that there was really no place for Carl to hide. He simply vanished. Now, I went online and looked up pictures of Avalanche Gulch. There is nothing up there. It is basic. It's, if you've ever been above treeline, you know it's nothing but rocks, right? There's no shrubbery. There's no large trees. And if there are, they're, I mean, they're at treeline. And they were pretty much above it at this point. It's also in May, and everything's covered in snow. Right. And that's another thing is there were no tracks? It doesn't appear to be. No one so ever. There's weird. no mention of tracks, no. Now, the search started to escalate, and the man known as Grizz Adams became the search coordinator assigned by the county. Grizz was a veteran of hundreds of search and rescues and ordered an Army National Guard helicopter to take professional climbers to the summit and then had them slowly descend using separate routes to look for Carl. With a name like Grizz Adams, you know he was born for that job. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's funny you say that because at the time of this interview, he was the SAR coordinator for the whole state of California. No way. Yeah, so he's this is what he does. He's good at it. Flex on him, Grizz. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so they never found him. They never found anything about him. This is only one of two cases that Grizz Adams has never found a body of. Whoa. Yeah, and the other one I bet is... bet it keeps Grizz up at night. I'm sure it does. The other one is also covered in this book. It's an older woman. Her husband died. Um, to me, it sounds like she killed herself. Oh. Yeah, it's a sad story. But he never found a body there either. Um, but yeah, so this is one of the two that he never found anything. So Carl is still gone. There's no evidence of what happened to him whatsoever. And So creepy. It's very weird to me because if you just go look... Go look at pictures of Avalanche Gulch of Fifty Fifty Camp and looking up in the direction that he headed, there is just there's nothing there. There's nowhere that I think you could just lay down and die and not be found. Uh, yeah. I don't know. And the fact that I mean, I know the altitude can do funny things to people. Hypothermia um, can do funny was, things but to he people. But he had a he had he was ready. I mean he has gear on. Yeah. He had a coat. The only thing that was wrong is he was he was pooping. <laughs> I don't know. Uh. It's a really weird one, and I really wanted to cover the 
cover it here. Yeah, um, no, that's a good one. I mean, so, not good. No, not not good for him. Now, there is one explanation I kind of want to go over. Uh, locals believe beings called Lemur- Lemurians live underneath Mount Shasta. Some people think he was taken by the Lemurians. What? Yes. Um, Lemurians were basically another ancient civilization compared to Atlantis. They were at odds over how they saw civilization in terms of how they should proceed because they were the two most advanced. The Lemurians thought that people should be left alone. Atlanteans thought they should be pushing people in the right direction. Um, they didn't like each other over it. Eventually, both continents sank. Lemurians went under Mount, underneath Mount Shasta and built a crystal city. And that's where what? they live now. Yeah. Uh, can we go find them? Yeah, you sure can. <laughs> if you dig deep enough, find I'm sure you'll find a lot more than uh, Lemurians down there in those weird caves. Yeah. But yeah. That's Carl. Well, there you go. And that actually, that kind of leads me into some other things that I wanted to talk about if we have the time. Yeah, we got time. Um, So, okay. I should start out by saying that David Paul Deans really prides himself on remaining neutral and not trying to explain, um, not trying to explain away these stories and really just kind of present you with the information so that you can kind of look into it and think what you want. Yeah. But I thought it would be fun for us to kind of look into some theories. So it's interesting that you would talk about the Lemurians. Uh, In my research that I did, again, I spent a lot of time on the Can-Am Missing 411 YouTube page. Yeah. Um, And... There's a lot of consistencies in these stories we've talked a lo- uh, we've talked about today. We've talked about the missing shoes or the the shoes being removed. Yeah. We've talked about the people being near water. Uh huh. Um, or on ridge lines, right? So these are these are kind of consistencies uh, in these in these clusters, and I wanted to kind of talk about those as well as some other theories. So I wanted to talk about a theory relating to granite. Um, and in Texas, there's a park called Enchanted Rock Park. It is the second largest granite dome um, in the United States, and it's actually pink granite. And it's believed that people have lived there for uh, 12,000 years. Um, <laughs> like in the rock? Lived in, around the rock. Okay. But the indigenous people believed that the rock gave them powers of invisibility and gave them access to spiritual and mystical realms. And there's a story that I found of a Spanish priest around the time of the Alamo. One thing led to another. I'm not sure exactly what led to him. There's different accounts of what led to him crawling into a crevice in the rock at the top of the the dome. But apparently he went up to the top of this mountain, up onto the top of this dome, and let himself, like, wriggled himself into a crevice at the Uh. top. No. And when he did that, he fell through and apparently entered um, this multi-tunnel system below the rock. And when he was in this tunnel and cavern system, he met various spiritual and mystical beings. And he came out, I think it was two days later, and everyone thought that he had been missing it turns out that he was in this tunnel system meeting spiritual beings. So it's in, I think that Whoa. that kind of sounds similar to he passed the, the test. Lemurian theory. Yeah. He found the crack. He found it. It's like that episode the new the it's like that new episode of the Twilight Zone, the space one. Yeah. Uh-huh. He anyway. figured it out, man. Yeah, he knew. Additionally, I've ran into a lot of stories of people who have had weird experiences um, with missing time or entering into places that now they've gone back and they can't find that place again. Um, And a lot of these people kind of theorize that they were themselves close to being a victim, similar to those of Missing 411, but they somehow something snapped them out of it beforehand. So these people have experiences with voices calling out to them. Um, I've read a couple of different stories of people hiking along. Mo- most of them have been alone. Some of them have been with their friends, and their friends have heard the voices as well. But they'll hear somebody. Most most of the time, it's a woman um, that just says something like, "Hey, you, come over here." Yeah, you, and they kind of giggle and they sound flirtatious, and then they 
you get kind of get called off trail and all of a sudden you turn around and you're you're lost. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so those ones are pretty creepy. I, I saw a lot of um, different stories about uh, Native American folklore of various spiritual beings that live in the water and live in the woods. And Skinwalkers. Some, some of them prefer children. Some of them um, do not. But uh, there are various tales of hairy men. Yeah. Which kind of loops us back over to Bigfoot. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. It is. Uh, fun to think the about. The thought of skinwalkers, I've read a couple of stories very similar to that where it's a voice that they kind of recognize and end up in just uh, not the right place. Also, the, the idea of portals out in the middle of the woods, that's something that I would like to look more into. Uh, we've found several stories of people describing what they see as glassy spots in basically the fabric of space-time. <laughs> it looks like you're walking along and then just part of what you're looking at all of a sudden, it, it looks like almost a window. Yeah. It's like there's this glass that just kind of forms in your, in your path. Yep, and then those people often experience missing time shortly after encountering one of those. Um, I saw stories of uh, people encountering those quote-unquote portals and sticking either their finger or their foot in it to see what would happen, and it just disappears. And so then at that point, they don't investigate any further. They're just so terrified they run away. But what if these people that we've... Right? But what if these people that we've um, been talking about tonight, what if something happened and they just, they fell into something like that? Or, yeah, they experimented a little too much. We'll never know. Nope. I, I read another really interesting story about a person when they were a child um they were on a playground by themselves and they heard again they heard that voice um and all of a sudden they turned around and there was a path that they hadn't seen before and they walked down this path and came to a very crystal cool pond or a crystal clear pond what and they said that they had this incredible instinct to drink from the pond and as they were getting ready to something snapped them out of it um and they decided to get up. They, they felt wrong, and they looked, and the path was getting narrower and narrower. And they oh, ran. Whoa. They ran back through it, and they were terrified. Anyway, they made it out the other end, but when they looked back, the path was gone. And they've since not been able to find this this pond. So wow, very um, strange. Yeah, what if it's just like ripples in our our reality? I believe that there are other time frames, or I guess <laughs> I believe in other dimensions. Absolutely. Like, there's different realities where we're all doing different things. It could be opposites of one another. could be totally different timelines. I absolutely believe that there are several different timelines happening at the same time. And what if we're just a little more pressed up against those alternate dimensions than we think? We're an electron away. Yeah. That's all we are. We're just, we're, we're an electron away from bouncing through to another one crazy it there's is. also if we really want to throw it back there's also the theory um of alien abduction yep with these missing individuals i'm not sure if we mentioned that there's actually a missing 411 documentary or um movie yeah. on amazon i think i think it's i think so I think um, it's on Prime. and in that movie there was a oh no sorry that was the skinwalker one was that the skinwalker documentary about the cattle mutilation Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So in in those instances, it's not people that have gone missing, it's cattle. Or in some cases, the cattle have gone missing, and when they've come back, they're in the exact same spot, or I should say their bodies are in the exact same spot, except they've been um, really carefully but quickly mutilated in a way where it looks like it's, it's a science experiment. Um, and so some people have noted that there's no blood left at those scenes and there's no bugs or any signs of like rot or decay uh, happening. So the theory is, is that they are um, sterilized. There's like a cleansing happening. Huh. So that's why animals are not attracted to it. It doesn't really have a scent. So oh, what weird. if these people are have been put back and they're just in a really horrible place, like know. buried under some roots? And Ugh. the reason why dogs can't find them is because they've just been cleaned uh, in this way. Oh, I'm sorry. Every once in a while, I'll be reading things and I'll get really interested. But then as soon as I say it out loud, I creep myself <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely going to keep me up tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, these thoughts are all um, well and good. I think maybe one of the more scary theories to me is that these people are just gone. They did just go missing, and it did take that short of an amount of time for a child to vanish. 
minutes can go by and all of a sudden you are in a totally different part of the woods than you thought you were and no one's listening for you. Maybe that's what's happening. We have selective hearing. If we don't want to hear someone screaming, we probably won't. That's true. But I mean, in that one case that you talked about, they found glasses and all, uh, what was it? Um, yeah. All these shoe other strings th- shoestrings and, and all these other little things. They were scoping out the area. You would think they would find something. You would think so. And I don't know, for some reason that, I mean, getting lost in the woods was already a big fear of mine. Being lost in a way and that you're just never found, it, there is something very unsettling about that. And one of the most real possibilities to me is that, and it's one of the scariest. Well, you'd like to think that you would know what to do. You'd like right? to. But what if you fall and you hit your head? Yeah. And now you're concussed. And exactly. you're, you're not thinking the way that you normally would. Yeah. You know, it can happen so quickly. Um, intense weather conditions, uh, heat entering or leaving the body... When you can't regulate the heat inside of your body, whether it be coming in or out, your brain does things that no matter how prepared you are, and even if you're aware that it's happening, you cannot stop. And that, to me, is also very scary. It's like there's a part of your lizard brain that cannot deal with uh, your body losing too much heat, and it just automatically goes into a mode of burrowing and looking for something to lie underneath, and you can't help it. It's That's very scary to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It. It's, it's a mental breakdown. Yeah. It, that's literally what's happening. Yeah, it's scary. It's super terrifying. Very you scary. You know, Chad and I, um, we we are avid outdoors people. Um, we used to be ski instructors. We've camped and hiked and, and skied and traveled. And I've always said that you should go out and get outside and get go hiking and, and be one with nature. Um, but after looking into what we've had to for this episode this week, I'm leaning a little more towards the uh, my favorite murder mantra, stay out of the forest. Just stay out. Just stay out. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Not a whole lot of good is happening in there. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, <laughs> there's a lot of good happening in there. Being but outside is great. Just It's risky. Be safe. And, be prepared. Uh, you know, have the things that you need to survive if you do get lost. Really, ultimately, that's a plug. Be safe. Tell people where you're going. If you got a GPS, use it. It's um, worth it. It's worth it to spend the money on a GPS. It's worth it to go out and get a map and learn how to use it. Um, yeah. I be don't smart. Know. If you fall through a portal, I don't know what to tell you. I know you want to go get that Insta shot, but listen to me. It's not worth it. Just think it through. Yeah. Something I hadn't said about alien abductions, maybe that's oh. why the storms come in, is to cover up the ship. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> we hacked it, everybody. Yep. Uh, that's another thing about Mount Shasta is a lot of the real, real heady people think that the clouds that form over it are uh, camouflage for the ships coming to dock in the the city there. I love it. Yeah. I'm into it. Why not? I'm here for I'll it. I'll believe anything now. <laughs> <laughs> just give me something to just think about, please. It's not just stupid. With arms wide open. <laughs> Um, just give me anything anything to cling to (laughs) okay well uh do you have anything else no but you know i just obviously want to want to say thank you guys again for listening um if there's anything that we've said today that uh particularly intrigued you or you want to know more about the resources that we use to create today's episode you can find us on instagram at the underscore lrh underscore pod uh shoot us a dm comment on a post um we're going to try to be a little bit more uh thorough about posting the links that we're using um, or at least some of them uh what else chad where else can they find us well you can find us on twitter at the underscore lrh underscore pod at LRH Pod. You can also email us at the LRH Show at gmail.com to contact us with your own stories, your own ideas about these missing people, or any other episodes that you might like to see in the future. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. It'd be great. Oh, I do have one more thing, actually. Oh, um, what's that? Well, if you guys are interested in checking out David Paulding's to decide for yourself whether or not he's credible, he does have his own Twitter. It is at CanAmMissing, uh, C A N A M Missing. And that is, I guess, technically the Can-Am missing Twitter, but it's it's his. Awesome. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. Mm-hmm. And you should definitely go check out the North American Bigfoot Research website. You can find that website at nabigfootsearch.com. Uh, it is inconsistent, like I said earlier. It's, it's older, I think. It's worth a look, though, digging through. See if you find anything interesting. Definitely. Yep. One more time, go hit us up. 
on Twitter, Instagram, email us if you'd like. Yep. Um, like, subscribe, give us some love. Please do. Check us um, out on Twitch during the weeks that we don't have an episode out at the LRH pod. Yeah, coming soon to a theater near you. Yes, <laughs> very soon. Um, awesome. Well, thanks again, everyone. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. We love all of you, and we hope you've been enjoying our episodes. We've got plenty more where this one came from. And as always, thanks for joining us here on The Long Road Home. Yay! Bye! Bye!